This is Today FM. It's been another week where there's been a lot going on. Debates about Ireland's role in the UN. Debates about doll prayers. Debates about, well, pretty much everything. Except Enda Kenny's future leadership. I'm Gavin Riley. This is Today FM. And that was the week. So we'll get to some of the week's other stories, Brexit, abortion, the maternity hospital and indeed women's rights in Saudi Arabia in a little while. Uh, but first to the story which, for better or worse, dominated a lot of hearts and minds in the Dole this week. And indeed it touches on some of the same themes of church and state as we've been looking at in the last couple of podcasts. Uh, as you might have already known, every sitting of the Dole in Shannon begins with a prayer, which is in fact written into the rules. It's a fairly simple and short prayer recited in two languages, takes about 30 seconds and goes something like this. Here my dirt to hear and all day for Corfuan, Conchina Stuart and Arganifra, Agus Niart across the Vrona Orin Cani the Hort Concreca, Onuscarucha, Hosofra or Nila Vriher, Agus Arnila Gani Fasta, Agus Gertrita Creek, no Fried, three Christ Tardirna. Direct, we beseech the Lord our actions by thy holy inspirations and carry them on by thy gracious assistance, that every word and work of ours may always begin from thee and by thee be happily ended. Through Christ our Lord. That's been part of the Dáil landscape since 1932 and although there's occasionally been controversy around it, it has survived unchanged since then for the last 85 years. But recently, in moves that we believe were initiated by Paul Murphy, uh, there were plans to follow the lead of the Shannad and introduce 30 seconds of silence in the Dáil as well. That would cater to both the overwhelmingly Christian population of the Oireachtas because they would still have a prayer, but also cater to those who weren't because they would have some kind of period for reflection themselves. But as Ruth Coppinger of the Solidarity Party observed on Tuesday, the proposed wording had a slight hitch. They actually are writing in a standing order now whereby all TDs present have to stand. Now, it was probably custom that if you were present, you stood. You know, people don't want to be disrespectful. Um, But now it's going to be written down. So technically speaking, a Ceann Corla who was of a certain persuasion might decide, well, I'm disciplining that TD. They didn't stand. I think now we just have to say this has to end. If I, I defend anyone's right to practice religion, but it should be a private matter. It shouldn't be in the doll chamber. And that's correct. The wording would prescribe that members would have to stand throughout the prayer, which is the current practice of most members, but it's not actually a strict rule. And that was to be raised in the Dáil when the rules then went to formal debate on Tuesday night, where Marcella Corcoran-Kennedy of Fine Gael said on balance that the new rules were fair. I appreciate that members across the House have different perspectives on this matter. In this state, religious belief does not dictate political party loyalty, and I assume that opinions may well differ within parties and groups. The Ceann Corla and the other members of the Committee on Procedure have clearly attempted to broaden the current procedure and reflect <clears throat> the beliefs or none of members of this chamber. Anne Rabbit of Fine Gael agreed. Both of the women, by the way, glossed over the prescribed standing and focused on the general thrust of introducing 30 seconds of silence after the prayer. I myself personally am glad to see that the prayer is retained. Um, while it is retained, I'm also glad to see that we also are reflective of other people and are using the opportunity of loan, the opportunity of reflection period of time. I think it is a part of our tradition. It has been a part of the tradition down through the years. 
And like all good things, we don't need to go abolishing all parts of tradition. We need to be respective of the people that went before us, what they stood for, what they believed in as part of that tradition. But Breed Smith of People Before Profit made the point felt by many that a parliament in a pluralist republic shouldn't have any mandatory prayer at all, even less so if it's mandatory for prayers to stand up throughout it. She joined Ruth Coppinger saying that if the new rules went through, she wouldn't be standing up. And I'm afraid if this passes, you and I are probably going to have loads of rows because I'm not standing. I'm not standing, no matter what I'm told uh, to, to do, because my religion or my belief is my business and it is not uh, up for public property or public scrutiny. And I hope that many TDs in the House will perform the same uh, act of civil disobedience or raucous disobedience. And in fact, Joan Collins of Independence for Change revealed that she had never in fact stood for the Dáil prayer at all because she boycotts the chamber whenever it's being read. Since being elected to the Dáil in early 2011, I've not felt myself, able to, uh, myself to be able to participate in the opening ritual of this Parliament. I've normally stayed outside the, par- or the chamber um, when the prayer has been said. If I'm cut short in the chamber, I sit to the back of the chamber there until the uh, prayer is over. I will not participate in it because I am not um, religious. I'm uh, an atheist. And it's wholly in- inappropriate for, elected me- for an elected member to be in that position. There did seem to be little appetite for movement, however, although interestingly, Catherine Zappone did break ranks by suggesting she would rather there not be a prayer. I am not in favour of having a Christian or a Catholic prayer before that. I took that stance when I was a senator. At the same time, um, I think it's, uh, it's, I'm, I'm happy at least that we have some time for quiet, some time for silence in order to do the work that we need to do. And then I think we just need to get on with that. And when it came to the electronic vote on Thursday, she did vote against the plans to try and retain the prayer. Uh, it must be said that she was planning to abstain for pro- almost all of the 60 second voting window and changed into the no column at just the last minute. But 97 TDs from Finnegale, Fianna Fáil, Labour and the independent benches did vote it through with 18 opponents and 18 abstentions, almost all of whom were from Sinn Féin. That means that from next Tuesday, TDs could be deemed to break the rules by not standing for the prayer, even if they're not observing it, or indeed belongs to a religion at all. The punishments for breaking the Dáil rules include being kicked out of the chamber for a day and losing a day's pay. Coppinger and Smith have refused to oblige, as you heard. We'll see what happens when the rule formally takes effect next Tuesday. One little point by the by. This controversy erupted on Tuesday... Three different opposition parties, Sinn Féin, uh, Joan Collins, as I said, and the Solidarity Group, all put down various amendments to try and get rid of the prayer. But for all of the context about people talking about how this has to be a new doll where everything is done by consensus and that we have to cater to the middle ground, it seemed that the middle ground might have been happy if there was a prayer and there was a reflection, but they simply scrapped this proposal that would make it obligatory to stand up. And yet, for the 158 TDs that there are on the doll. Not one of them put down an amendment that simply would have scrapped the rule for mandatory standing and said we had three amendments to get rid of a prayer that clearly a majority of the House wanted to go in favour of. And if anything speaks to how dysfunctional new politics can be sometimes, it's the fact that nobody is willing to propose an amendment that the middle ground would happily accept. Today FM. Another area in which the church's influence on the state can be seen is in the whole debate around abortion, with this being the first week back for the Dáil to mention the findings of the Citizens' Assembly. Now, as politicians returned on Tuesday, they were met with demonstrations outside Leinster House on the way in, demanding action on the recommendations from the Assembly, which wants abortion to be available effectively in any circumstances up to 12 weeks, and for longer in other circumstances. The first time it was raised was on Wednesday, when Ruth Coppinger again raised it in the Dáil. 
Having the Citizens' Assembly as your chosen method of dealing with the Eighth Amendment, can I ask you, Minister, are you and your party going to accept its findings, or are you going to go in there and try to water them down, as has been advocated by some? Enda Kenny was away in his travels. He was already gone to Canada at this point. We'll get back to him in just a moment. Richard Bruton, though filling in for him, was in fairly non-committal mode. The legislature does have to do its work, and I don't think we, uh, while we welcome the view of the Citizens' Assembly, it is an input into our work, and I think it has been recognised that we need now an Oireachtas Committee, which will be composed of both uh, Senators and members of the Dáil, to tease through those and come back to the Dáil with uh, recommendations. That, as you can imagine, didn't go down terribly well with pro-choice campaigners like Alva Smith of the Coalition to Repeal the Eighth Amendment, who was leading those protests outside. There's plenty there for the Joint Committee to work on and let's hope that that they get their their report out to the Doyle very, very promptly and that's why we're calling that rally today to urge them to do so and indeed to support them in that work so that once and for all women in this country can have a degree of certainty and safety in their lives as far as their reproductive health is concerned. On Thursday, Francis Fitzgerald, who was in the hot seat, was taking similar questions from Sinn Féin's Mary Lou Macdonald. Now we must have a clear sense of when the referendum will be put, when people will have the opportunity to repeal the Eighth uh, Amendment. Your colleague, Minister Zappone, has no difficulty in stating her preference for an early referendum. I want you to simply confirm and clarify that that is a view shared by government. Thank you, Deputy. Bear in mind, by the way, that Sinn Féin doesn't want an abortion regime quite as liberal as the one proposed by the Citizens' Assembly, but it does want a more aggressive constitutional change. It wants the constitutional clause on abortion deleted entirely. The Assembly just said it should be amended, changed to a degree. Anyway, Frances Fitzgerald was also fairly non-committal about what the government would do next, but she did at least put her own position clearly on the record. There is a time frame for that committee of a number of months, and at that point then the government will take uh, an overall approach. My own belief, as I've already often said, is that the Constitution is not the place uh, to deal with these complex issues, and I do believe a referendum should be heard, uh, held as early as possible. Someone else putting their position on the record this week was Michal Martin, the Fianna Fáil leader. He hasn't given a doorstep to reporters in Leinster House for a few months now, but he does still pop up doing other interviews on occasion. On Thursday, he gave an interview to Shane Beattie on KFM in Kildare, when Shane asked about Fianna Fáil's own views, and indeed Michal Martin's own views, on abortion in some circumstances. People will want to know, particularly because we never really know when there's going to be an election or not. People will want to know. Yeah, they will know, because the last occasion, for example, the Protection of Human Life and Pregnancy Act, um, I voted for that act. Uh, which was uh, bringing the DX case within mm-hmm. the legislative framework. So that was a very specific proposal. We had a freedom of conscience forward in the party. Some voted against that. I voted for it. Right. But ju- just I it was the right I, thing to do with I, I know politicians hate talking about this, so I, I just... I, I'll... Well, no, it's fine, but I, I just think we do need to know the okay. specifics. You, yes, the specifics. So and then subsequently what, about, what about in cases of uh, incest and rape? Again, look, uh, in, in terms of uh, the, 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 they're not that simple uh, in terms of issues, but again... No, but uh, if I, I someone is raped by, issues. just to be clear, if someone is raped by their father, for example, and becomes pregnant as a result, what's your view on abortion in that case? Well, it's not that simple, Shane. Um, as, as, well, you can't be with respect, you, someone's either pregnant or not pregnant. Sorry? Someone's either pregnant or not pregnant. They are indeed. So uh, it's not that complex. Well, 
well, it, well, it actually is in terms of the, the, the in terms of the, the, the. Are you talking about within ten weeks? Are you talking about within twenty weeks, for example? I'm, I'm talking about a father raping his I know, daughter. But it's not that simple. It's just not that simple in terms of... And she of becomes pregnant as a result. You don't see that as a simple yes or no? Well, I don't, actually. It's not a simple yes or no. That depends on, on, on a number would of there, would there be any circumstance? Would there be any circumstance where a father raped Shane, his just, daughter? Yes, go on, Sean, just Shane. I know people today who are alive um, whose, whose, whose mothers would have been, in one particular case, was, was raped and she was the outcome of that. And she gets very angry when people suggest that she should never have had a life. So this is not simple. Now, of course, some would argue with that position or some would agree with it. Some would believe that, however tragic and unfortunate the circumstances of a pregnancy might be, another human life is created under those circumstances and people would say that deserves not to be ended just because of the tragedy in which it was created. But Michal Martin's position does raise the spectre of somebody being abused by a relative, impregnated as a result, and then being forced to continue a pregnancy that serves as a continual reminder of their own trauma. It only goes to show just how tricky the whole question of tackling the eighth will be, which is probably why Finifi- which is probably why Finnegale can't find any volunteers to do it. They're supposed to have five members on the Oireachtas committee to look at the assembly's findings, but they've only been able to find Kate O'Connell and Bernard Durkin as volunteers. That leaves three spaces vacant, and there don't seem to be many people volunteering to take up the jobs. Also on the Leinster House agenda for the first time this week was the National Maternity Hospital and the row over whether it should be left in the ownership of the Sisters of Charity. Michal Martin said the issue should have been spotted sooner. He rushed out saying he was going to write to the HSE to seek clarification on the deal. When in doubt, the ministers write to the HSE now, as if he knew nothing about it, Taoiseach. A rabbit caught in headlights because the... Uh, furore that developed as a result of the revelations seemed to catch him by surprise. Enda Kenny said Simon Harris simply needed to be given more time to work through everything, but other ministers were being a bit more vocal. Catherine Zappone, the Minister for Children, who are, after all, the people who will be born in that hospital, said she would prefer to see the hospital out of religious hands altogether. My preference is that the state has ownership in relation to the National Maternity Hospital. In terms of how that happens, and I think I've said that before, but in terms of how that happens, I think it's important to provide the minister with the time, really, to explore those two options or perhaps maybe another one. On Wednesday, the Dáil passed a Sinn Féin motion which called for the hospital to go ahead on the side of St Vincent's, which is owned by the Sisters of Charity, but with a keen push to keep the hospital itself in full state ownership. Everyone seemed happy for Simon Harris to take some time to see what he can do to bring that into effect. No doubt it is time he'll need, and we'll be watching very closely. Today FM. On Thursday, there was a different row entirely brewing in Leinster House, but one of slightly unexpected origin. Now, departed away from the busy hubbub of the Dáil and Leinster House, Ireland does have legions of diplomats working away on various international causes around the world. One is at the UN base in New York, where Ireland's a member of the Economic and Social Council. Now, a couple of weeks ago, that council, which has 54 members, were asked to find a few new countries to fill some gaps on the UN's Commission on the Status of Women, which is its high-level group for women's rights and gender equality. One of the candidate countries was Saudi Arabia, which is a country where women cannot drive and where women need the permission of a male guardian to travel or work. And of the 54 members who had a vote to fill those gaps... 47 of them voted in favour of Saudi Arabia. Now, it was a secret ballot, but Belgium already has admitted that it voted in favour of the Saudi bid. Its Prime Minister Charles Michel has apologised to the Belgian people for doing so. It's worth bearing in mind that there are 10 EU members out of those 54, so at least three of them must have voted in favour of the Saudi bid. 
But on Thursday morning, the Department of Foreign Affairs told journalists it would not reveal how Ireland had voted. And many in the opposition, including Fianna Fáil's Dara O'Brien, were a bit put out. Of course, international relations aren't straightforward and international diplomacy is not straightforward. But Saudi Arabia having a seat on a UN commission that's looking into the rights of women, can anyone seriously tell me that that's something that Ireland in the 21st century should support? Absolutely no way on earth should we support that. One could argue, by the way, that maybe putting the Saudis on a Women's Rights Commission might be a way to educate them about how the rest of the world treats women. Labour's Ivana Bacic, however, says that thought is not unfair, but it is a bit impractical. There is an opening up in Saudis, no doubt about that, but I think it's too much too soon to be to be supporting their me- me- uh, candidacy for a position of membership on the UN Commission on, on Status of Women. I think there are other ways in which other states can engage with Saudi to try and en- encourage greater participation of women in public life, but I think this is too far too soon. The refusal of Charlie Flanagan to divulge exactly how Ireland had voted led to Francis Fitzgerald being asked about the issue in the Dáil that lunchtime. It has been the practice uh, by previous governments and by this government. This is the procedures that have been adopted in the UN uh, in order to facilitate uh, the business of the UN and uh, the government uh, do not disclose. But it didn't stop there and that afternoon again in topical issues Ireland's voting patterns were raised again by Mick Wallace and Claire Daly. And there, in what it has to be said are fairly striking scenes, Charlie Flanagan simply refused to answer the question, saying it would be bad for Irish diplomacy to reveal how Ireland votes. This is not a practice that is specific to Ireland or to elections for the Commission on the Status of Women. It relates to any UN body, and I'm not aware of any member state which, as a matter of practice, publicly reveals how it votes. It would be very damaging to Ireland's ability to conduct international relations successfully if we were unilaterally to move away from this established practice. It would be irresponsible to abandon a practice that has been in place for over six decades, observed by all previous governments, and that is grounded on protecting and promoting the values of small countries on the world stage. Now, his rationale might be fairly sound, but the delivery was a bit brusque. It was almost offensive to those who thought that their country's positions should be known. And in time, they might be, because Dara O'Brien told me he wants to do something about it. I have actually... uh tabled at the Foreign Affairs Committee that we will have a discussion on the transparency of UN votes and how Ireland votes on all issues and that will come up at the next Foreign Affairs Committee meeting toward the end of next week because this has raised this issue about votes being taken on our behalf, okay, on behalf of the citizens of a republic here and us not knowing about how, you know, how we're exercising those votes and which side of, 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 of different issues we're on. We deserve a right to know. That also seems to be a fair premise. People should, after all, deserve to know exactly how their country is acting. But nobody wants to get into a row where the pragmatism of diplomacy ends up clashing against the idealism of having a transparent government. So it'll be interesting to see what happens when that one comes before the committee in a few weeks' time. One little postscript about this, by the way. In Canada, and again we'll talk about Enda Kenny's trips in just a moment, he was also asked about whether Ireland should reveal how it votes at the UN. We've raised the question of women's rights uh, with the Saudi Arabians when I was there myself a number of years ago on a, a trade mission. Um, this is uh, a, an issue that concerns us greatly. Uh, it's always been a long-standing convention uh, not to indicate the nature of the vote um, on an issue like that of the United Nations. But back in 2014, Enda Kenny had a slightly different tale when he told the Dáil about his Middle Eastern trip. During the meeting with Saudi Crown Prince Salman, I noted the election of Saudi Arabia to the UN Human Rights Council as a positive development in the area of human rights and expressed Ireland's interest in working more closely 
with Saudi Arabia on human rights issues. The issue of women's rights was not specifically discussed. We did discuss issues around peace and stability in the region, which were also the main focus of my meeting with the Saudi Deputy Foreign Minister Abdulaziz bin Abdullah. So did he discuss women's rights in Saudi Arabia, or didn't he? It's not the first time it must be said that Enda Kenny's words have been contradicted, but it might be the first time that he's contradicted himself. Today FM. Escaping the Leinster House bubble, it's been a fairly busy week on the Brexit front. Last Sunday, a German newspaper, the Frankfurter Allgemeine, carried a fairly extensive take on a big dinner between Theresa May and the European Commission President Jean-Claude Juncker, who visited Downing Street last week. Juncker apparently accused the Brits of being hopelessly naive, particularly over two things. Firstly, the idea that they could sort out the whole question of residency rights for EU citizens before the end of June. That would be just within three weeks of the UK's general election. And secondly, the idea that the talks could remain totally confidential when there's meant to be 27 other governments on the other side of the table, all of whom need to be informed about progress. Now, the leaks only went and turned the whole relationship a bit sour, particularly when Theresa May came up with this fairly audacious claim on Wednesday. Threats against Britain have been issued by European politicians and officials. All of these acts have been deliberately timed to affect the result of the general election that will take place on the 8th of June. Here at home, meanwhile, there was still something of an afterglow from last Saturday's summit of those 27 EU countries, all of which saw their Prime Ministers or Presidents sign off on the EU's negotiating position. Now, that position includes an explicit clause that the EU will aim to avoid a hard border in Ireland as long as it's possible to do so while also respecting EU law. The Irish government says, for what it's worth, that it should be possible to do that. In a separate document, there's also an explicit guarantee that a reunited Ireland even if it's not technically the same state as today's republic, would be an automatic EU member, the North included. Now, Enda Kenny was happy with his achievements and he followed them up by getting the Cabinet to sign off on Tuesday on a more technical document for Ireland. That included the desire to avoid a hard border through political solutions, not just electronic or technical ones. It should be a case that, politically speaking, there will be no border, not just because there's some inventive way about scanning number plates electronically or anything like that. Ireland also has an interesting demand that Irish citizens in the North should still be able to invoke the same rights as EU citizens anywhere else. And that was also something that the EU's chief negotiator, Michel Barnier, said that he wanted to do when he spoke on Wednesday. Who are we trying to protect? Who do we want to protect? Not just those who live and work today in the United Kingdom, but also those people who have resided or worked there in the past, those who will reside there or work there before the date at which the United Kingdom exits, and members of their family. And and what I'm saying, of course, applies to British citizens who live and work in any one of the 27 countries uh, of the European Union. And that is going to put the two sides on a warpath because Theresa May has already made it fairly clear that part of the whole point of Brexit is that she wants European courts to butt out of how the UK goes about its life. That's completely not the case. If an Irishman living in England, or indeed an Irishman living in Northern Ireland, has the right to go to the ECJ to defend his rights, whereas an Englishman or a Unionist British citizen in the North wouldn't have that right. So we suspect this is one that's going to run and run. By the way, though, given that Theresa May had previously hinted that she favours a much softer version of Brexit, it is a bit confusing to think that she now thinks the EU is going out of its way to try and stop her from building a majority against it. Maybe Donald Tusk was right when he asked everyone simply to cool the jets a bit. These negotiations are 
difficult enough as they are. If we start arguing before they even begin, they will become impossible. The stakes are too high to let our emotions get out of hand because at stake are the daily lives and interests of millions of people on both sides of the channel. We must keep in mind that in order to succeed, we need today discretion, moderation, mutual respect, and a maximum of goodwill. Barnier himself, by the way, will be addressing a joint sitting of the Dáil and Shannon the next coming week. But what of Enda Kenny and his global travels? Well, he was only back a few days from Brussels before he was jetting off again, this time to Montreal to meet with the Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. It was Thursday, May the 4th, when they met. It being May the 4th, Trudeau wore Star Wars socks for the occasion. If you don't get the gag, May the 4th be with you. But as the Taoiseach has no further travel plans at this stage, the legitimate question arises, is this it? Is this going to be Enda Kenny's last tour as Taoiseach? It was a question that Danny McConnell of the Irish Examiner flew 3,000 miles to ask, only to get this non-reply. I can't believe, actually, that you've travelled this distance to ask a question like that. I've come here to speak to the uh, Canadian Prime Minister and Canadian business about opportunities that exist across the Atlantic for the creation of jobs and investment uh, to the benefit of Canadians and Irish people, to discuss the opportunities for Canada and Europe to discuss the opportunities for Ireland and Canada with the United States, and that's my business here. Next question. Taoiseach, you actually haven't answered the question? I asked you specifically, will you deal with it next Wednesday at the Parliamentary Party meeting? I I just said to you, Daniel, I can't believe you've travelled this distance to ask a question I'm actually asking on behalf of all the Irish media, Taoiseach. My function here. On all all the Irish media have asked me to ask this question, Taoiseach. So just be clear on that. Just be clear on that. My function here is, uh, is uh, in discussion with the Prime Minister of Canada to discuss the opportunities uh, that present themselves for investment and job creation on either side of the Atlantic. Thank you. Personally, as a member of the media, I think it's a fairly legitimate question, given the major diplomatic issues facing the country in the near future. Uh, the Taoiseach, by the way, was barely in the air a few hours before Leo Varadkar was already making himself at home in government buildings. He was talking to journalists on Wednesday to discuss the latest unemployment figures. This week it's been shown that unemployment in Ireland is now down to 6.2%, and in fact unemployment among under-25s is now falling at a fairly significant rate. Unemployment among the general population was only 6.4% in March, now 6.2%. Can we go on a tangent here, by the way, just a very quick one. The budget expected that unemployment in Ireland would only fall to 7.7% this year. It's now, as I said, 6.2%, and it's only in April. But despite being so far below that, the amount of income tax that we're taking in is still below the projections that the government set out on budget day. It's all a bit weird. Anyway, questions inevitably turned to a leadership contest and whether Leo Varadkar had considered his own prospective fantasy cabinet. Yeah, like I say, that's that's something I haven't uh, given much consideration to at this stage. And, but isn't um, there merit for consistency? Well, you know, I think before I have any, or answer any questions asked by the media about, um, you know, future positions that other people may hold, I should have that conversation with them first, and, and I haven't had those conversations. Worth noting there, by the way, that Leo's answer didn't include the usual caveat of, no, oh, I'll have to win the election first. It's a bit more straightforward than that. He was also asked when he thought that contest might kick off. I've kind of given up speculating on it at this stage because um, so many people have uh, been predicting dates and, uh, I'll reword and uh, it, so they've got them wrong. If, so, if he uh, decides to stay until post-budget, would you be happy enough to sit and wait? I've always said that the timeline is a matter for Enda Kenny. I've never departed from that position. Um, 
I know Simon has talked about uh, you know announcements being made shortly after St Patrick's Day uh, about it being a matter of weeks rather than months. I think as far back as February he was saying that I've actually never never set a deadline um, and I've always set it up since Egypt. Ouch! But the question does remain: When might there be a contest? Kenny has another meeting of the Fine Gael Parliamentary Party this coming Wednesday, March May the 10th, I think. That could be the time when he announces his departure, but it's probably not going to be. And that's because it's the day before Michel Barnier, and that's because it's the same. And that's because it's the same day that Michel Barnier addresses the doll, as far as I know. And it's also coming a day before Enda Kenny's due to spend two days in Druid's Glen at a meeting of Fine Gael's European Party, the EPP. And he's definitely not going to want to host a Eurobash if it's only going to become his political wake. It might be the Wednesday after that, the 17th, before we finally get some guidance. An interesting footnote to all of this, by the way, the Irish Examiner reported on Friday that Fine Gael had already rented a few hotels around the country to hold polling stations for local members who would have the right to vote in a leadership contest. Fine Gael itself has denied that report, but the Irish Examiner is sticking by it. So at this point, we simply don't know exactly when a leadership contest might get underway. Today FM. That's our lot for this week's podcast. As ever, please do like, rate, subscribe, do whatever it is you kids do for whatever it is that your platform, uh, podcast platform is. Uh, gav at todayfm.com. That's gav at todayfm.com is the place for all your comments, feedback, uh, criticism, positive or otherwise. Um, do let me know, gav at todayfm.com. Uh, we'll see you next week for another digest of everything going on inside Leinster House. But until then, I'm Gavin Riley, and that was the week.